thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we are uh, studying tonight. My, my ambitious goal is to go through the fourth and fifth trumpets, uh, meaning I'd like to go through verse, chapter 8, verse 12 to 9, verse 12. So let's see how far we can get. Nothing I want to point out to you. You will see that as we progress through this, it is more and more um, sort of a formal study with many references to the to the Old Testament. The reason why I'm doing it this way, instead of just you know spewing a bunch of stuff at you and telling you this is what that means and this is what this means, is because primarily the difficulty we all encounter with the book of Revelation is not purely intellectual. Because this book helps us restructure our understanding of how God works through the world. And that understanding clashes with our weak morality. At the end of the day, we're all sinners and we all are struggling in, a day, in our daily lives, to live the moral life. And that is working against us. So the only way we can counteract this is if we repeat and we convince ourselves of the truth of this message by listening to Scripture over and over again. So I really encourage you to take notes, because by taking notes, you know how we say, he who sings prays twice? Well, he who writes thinks twice. It'll help you learn a lot more what you're listening instead of just hearing me talk and then getting out of here. And since we live in the United States of Amnesia, forgetting everything I said within the next two minutes, as soon as there's a new song that pops up or news or whatever. Notes will help you keep that in place. I hope that by now those of you who have been with us throughout this period are starting to see a change in the way you apprehend these images that are being thrown at you from as we read the book. I'm hoping that the, there is now maybe a delayed reaction where you go, oh, no, wait a minute, this is not literal. There's, there's another meaning behind this. This is a representation that is rooted in Scripture and carries meaning from Scripture. I'm hoping, and that's why I'm also taking my time, because I'm hoping that by the end, when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, this transformation is complete. And that would be the greatest grace, I think, you could receive from studying this book. Because it really grounds you in the reality of today, instead of making you hope or despair from what tomorrow will bring. This book is about today, primarily. And also about 
the end of the world. With that, let's turn to chapter 8, verse 12 in the book of Revelation, which is the fourth trumpet. And the one thing that we will uh, note as we go through this fourth trumpet is that the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars are now under attack. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. As we've seen before, third means partial. We shouldn't think of it as exactly a third. So if, as I'm reading this text, a PowerPoint image is forming in your mind where you see the sun and then a nice little third, pi, that is now colored black. Then you see the stars and either a third of those or maybe a third of each of them is now black. And you see the moon and a third of it is black. Take that picture, put it in the garbage and never ever look at it again. Because it has nothing to do with a text. Nothing. What we've seen before is that sun, moon, and stars are the symbols of power of any kingdom. The way kingdoms measure time is by using the sun, the moons, and the stars. So when those are being hit, what it's saying is that the power of that kingdom is now weakened. What it's basically stating to each one of us is that as those woes are being inflicted on the world, the power of the world is weakened. That's what is important for us to understand when we hear this text. Now, when we, when we look at the plagues of Egypt and we consider Exodus chapter 10 verse 21, we can see that that particular plague is at play here because... In that plague, if you recall, God causes darkness over all of Egypt. And that was a sign that the power of the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh being considered to be the incarnation of the sun, is now broken. What this tells us is that when God acts through history, his activities are political. They have a political dimension to them. They're not purely political, but they express themselves in a political fashion. So we should not be looking for a physical manifestation of the power of God in the world. We should not be expecting to see these physical manifestations out there as a sign of God working in the world. Why? If you think about it, it makes logical sense. On the one hand, because of the church, God gave us the greatest physical manifestation of his power for us believers, and that is the church. We don't need anything else. Why? Because he expects us to be children of Abraham and to walk by faith. And it is our faith informed by our works that gives God, that give God glory. Therefore, if he were to manifest himself physically, 
he would, in a sense, take away from the authority and the glory he gave his church. That is why we should not expect that, us as believers. Conversely, for the non-believers, any sign that is given, any physical sign that is given them, would be proceeding out of his mercy. But what we're talking about here is precisely his wrath. So when you understand the covenant, part of the wrath of God is to hide the truth from those who are being punished. After all, what is hell? Hell is not a place the way we think of any regular place. People sometimes have difficulty. Well, is God so good? Why did he create hell? This is nonsensical because the reality is that hell, just like as sin, is not a thing. It is the absence of something. Both sin and hell are the absence of God's grace. So, you, you know what, what I'm talking about if you had someone whom you loved and this person is no longer with you. You're in the same house. You're in the same room. It's the same environment as it was yesterday. Yet today, that environment has become unbearable. Why? Because there is something lacking. And God, who knows that, gives those faithful the grace to overcome that sense of emptiness. That sense of nothingness. And allows them to move on and be comforted and be consoled in His presence. Because what he's saying to them is, my child, this person whom you loved so much, this person was a sacrament of my love for you. And while this person is gone, my love, my love is everlasting. And I will always be there for you, no matter what. Those are the special graces that God gives us in those very difficult moments. But to the unbeliever, those graces are not there. And if all they had was that person and the person is gone, they are tormented. And we're going to see that in the sixth trumpet. Now, I said I'm not going to pace, but you guys have to do your part. So I would ask my Catholic friends on that end of the spectrum to move in, please. So I don't have to be like a radar doing a 180-degree turn. Thanks. Yeah, but I just imagine what it does to you. I just can't pace anymore. I'm done. I mean, I'm telling you, the spacing deal, when I watched myself, I just felt like saying, so that's the significance of this fourth trumpet that we just uh, went through. So, in, in support of this explanation, we can go to Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7 and 8. God speaks to a later Egyptian generation who was just as ungodly as that of Pharaoh. And he says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. 
Likewise, in Wisdom, chapter 17, beginning with verse 2, we read, For when lawless men supposed that they held the holy nation in their power, they themselves lay as captives of darkness and prisoners of long night, shut in under their roofs, exiles from eternal providence. Exiles from eternal providence. This is a text in wisdom that is a commentary on the plagues of Egypt. Verse 4. For not even the inner chamber that held them protected protected them from fear. I've told you before that one sign of your spiritual life is your relationship to natural darkness. If you are afraid of natural darkness, and let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not saying you're in some dark alley in some bad neighborhood. There, you should be afraid. Because that might cause you to run or scream or do something. I'm talking about a situation when you're at home in your own kitchen. There is light. You know the neighborhood. There is nothing that would give you nothing uh, that would give you a rational cause to fear. Then you just flick the light off and now you're afraid. That's a bad sign. That's a wake up call. What you should be sensing in that darkness is the presence of the Lord. Because as you close down all sources that feed your senses, you bring in holy silence. And it is in holy silence that we encounter the Lord. And so you should marvel at the presence of the Holy Spirit in your house. Now, this is not something new that I'm fabricating. This is what it means to be a Catholic. And if you're not there, it's a warning sign. Because natural darkness, darkness is precisely a sacrament for what? Death. It prepares us for that moment. And if we are not preparing ourselves this way, we're going to have a really rough ride the moment we die. Because i got news for you. We're going to die. I know some of us think of ourselves as immortal. We all plan our days like we're not going to die. But it's going to happen one day. And we might be surprised. Oh, what happened? Oh, I'm dead. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. The Lord reminds us that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There are a couple of important points in this verse. The first one is that the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars is a divine act. It is God that causes those things to go out, just as it is a divine act to bring light unto all. So God is always in charge. This principle 
This principle of God being always in charge is the root of charity in our heart. Let me say that again. This is the root of charity in our heart. Why? Because as we become more and more convinced of the fact that God is in charge at every moment of our lives, that He loves us and He protects us and He wants us in heaven, then we start to overcome our natural fear through supernatural charity. Because if you knew that your father is rich and your father is all-powerful and your father can do everything and no matter where you are, he can reach you. And no matter who's attacking you, he can defend you and protect you. Wouldn't that be easy for you to be charitable? Wouldn't that be easy for you to be patient? Wouldn't that be easy for you to put up with those who persecute you? Conversely, as you see the woes, as you see God's wrath on those who are not sealed, I remind you that the, that the woes are for those who are not sealed. Those who are sealed are those who are baptized, those who, are, who have the life of the sacrament. Those woes coming down, coming down are coming on those who are not sealed, who are not living a life of grace. I want to be a little bit clearer on that point. When I say those who are sealed, I do not mean those who are ready to be canonized this instant. I mean those who have a fatherly relationship with God. Those who love Jesus. Those who love the Holy Spirit. And those who are trying. And failing. And trying again. And failing again. And trying and trying and failing and trying. They get up, they make two steps, and they fall. They get up again, and they fall. That's the majority of us. Those are sealed. Those are beloved of God, not because they're successful, but because they are faithful. You know, that's a saying by Mother Teresa. God doesn't want us to be successful. He wants us to be faithful. And what a tricky saying this is. Because most of us would say, yeah, that's true. I have to relax. I don't have to be successful. I just have to be faithful. Think about it. What's it. What is easier? Be successful or be faithful? Way harder to be faithful. Way harder when there's, there doesn't seem to be anything coming your way. Harder. But that's what he wants. And as long as we're trying... As long as we are trying, not succeeding at it, but keep on trying, demonstrating our faithfulness, He takes care of us. It is those who refuse Him. You know, when I talk to people who don't believe in God, I tell them, quite frankly, well, looks like you chose to go to hell. They get offended. What if God exists... And God is love. Why was he sending me to hell? Wait a minute. He's not sending you anywhere. You chose to go to hell. How so? Well, let me ask you the simple question. If, if If heaven has God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Son is Jesus Christ, crucified, 
rose from the dead, went to heaven, and he's Lord of Lord and God from God, and it is all about Catholics. Would you want to be there? And they look at me, don't answer. And I say, obviously you don't want to because you don't want to be Catholic right now. You made up your mind, it seems to me. The truth is not that difficult. Where we're going is not that difficult to figure out. We think it's such a big mystery. Really, it isn't. It's a logical deduction. I love the way Abbot Claude puts it. He's a, he's a holy monk at uh, the Prince of Peace Abbey. He's 90 years old. Pardon? He's going to be 100 this year. God bless him. He's, he's 90, I mean, when I talked to him back then, he was 94, 95. You know, he was a youngster. And then, and then he said to me, as long, as long as I keep trying, I have it made. That's it. As long as I keep trying, I have it made. He didn't say, as long as I'm doing miracles and raising people from the dead, and as long as I keep trying, I have it made. That was it. All right? So, as these truths seep into your heart, realizing who you are, and what God calls you to do, it orients your attitude towards Him in a filial, loving relationship. And then you turn around and you look at the world, and you would not wish harm on anyone. And yeah, you pray for those who persecute you because you know what's coming. And you don't want to wish that on anybody. Now, Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36. So chapter 31, verse 35 and 36. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its, its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from, me, from before me, says the Lord, then shall the descendants of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So the breakup of the celestial ordering is linked to the existence of, of the nation. You, you, you understood that text? If this order of the sun, the moons, and the, star giving, the stars giving their light, if it were to cease, then that would signal the end of the, the, the nation of Israel. And so it is for every kingdom. So it is for every kingdom. Why? Because if you recall our series on a temple, what is the temple? It's a microcosmos. What is the cosmos? It's a macro temple. So anytime the architecture of the temple is broken, it signals the end of the liturgy. And the nation of Israel is a nation of priests. And that would signal the end of that nation. Do you understand how the two are linked? Now, Jewish interpretation bears this out very clearly because according to, the Jew, to, to, to Jewish interpretation, it was said that the world was created for the sake of Israel. If Israel will not keep the law given at Sinai, then God would reduce the world to its original chaos 
and darken its luminaries so that even after Sinai, the existence of the cosmos was contingent upon Israel keeping the covenant because the world was created through the covenant. Thus, the covenant is the pillar upon which the world stands. Right? And that is why I am so insistent in telling Catholics, stop worrying about the world. Worry about the church. Worry about what Catholics do in the church. When Catholics are reoriented towards the liturgy, when they celebrate the liturgy in truth and in the spirit, as Christ asks us to do, it has such a powerful talking effect that it can reorient the world. That's how it works. So the darkening of the universe as a result of faithlessness plunges the world in ignorance and restricts the possibility of salvation. So instead of thinking of the situation of the Catholic Church in the world as a pitched battle between them and us, think of it apocalyptically. Think of it according to the covenant. When the world rejects the church, when the world refuses to listen to the church, effectively, the world is saying, I don't want to listen to the truth. And as such, the world is condemning itself to despair. Because the only thing that saves us from despair is the truth. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 may be brought as a reference here. I will make the sun go down at noon and the earth dark in broad daylight. This prediction of a coming judgment on Israel was patterned after the plague of darkness that struck Egypt. Okay? So as we look at the four trumpets, the first, the first dealing with the grass, the trees, and the land. The second dealing with the sea. The third dealt with the rivers. And the fourth with the sun, the moon, and the stars, we see all the natural order being affected by those curses. And the result, famine. And as a result, we have famine. Food is no longer available. There is disruption in the economy. So those are four natural woes. They are directed at unbelievers... And they signal the beginning of their judgment. The fourth trumpet is going to provide us with an appropriate transition into the next three woes, which are spiritual in nature and much, much worse. Because they involve the unleashing of demonic powers. And the four trumpets, as we saw right now, and you said that last time, are a decreation. It's a breakup of the world where the stars, the moon, the sun, the trees, the plant, the earth, the sea are all being broken up, contrary to what happened during creation. It makes sense because all of this is leading to the unveiling of the mystery, which we're going to see in chapter 10 and 11 and all the way through. The unveiling of the mystery, which is the new creation, the church. Hence, one order, one world is going to be destroyed 
to make place for the next one. The famine that was portrayed here may be a symptom of something much broader. So that as one says, for instance, uh, there were ten sails on the sea, implying there were ten ships on the sea. Technically, this is called a cynic dock, where you use a part to speak of the whole. Famine may be a symptom for a much broader disruption. All right? And their purpose, therefore, is to harm man indirectly because they've harmed nature. Now we're going to move into the next three trumpets, the next three woes, which are directed at the unbelievers. And what I would say to you is again, resist the temptation of hearing those images in a modern, scientific, materialistic way, because that's not going to lead you anywhere. I don't know about the war between China and the the Soviet Union and Israel. Um, Maybe one of these days it's going to happen. Who knows? But I don't think this is what St. John had in mind when he received this vision. I am not going to read all of those three trumpets in one shot, because, of course, they start with chapter... Uh, 9 verse 1 and they run all the way through chapter 14 so it's five chapters that we have to go through before we come to the end of those trumpets and we begin the much the much fiercer and horrid woes of the cup the bowls of wrath what i'm going to do instead is give you remind you of the most important elements that we see in those three woes. The opening of the bottomless pit. The locusts. The release of four angels for the purpose of killing one-third of mankind. The vision of the horses. The two witnesses. The beast that ascends from the bottomless pit. The great earthquake. The great portents in heaven. The woman. The dragon. The war between Michael and, 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 the, and the dragon. Mount Zion and the the 144,000. The number of the beast. The vision of one like a son of man with a sickle in his hand. The great harvest and the winepress that leads to the bowls of wrath. All those elements are part of these three woes we're going to be studying. What we're going to do now is look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 12. Let me read to you the fifth woe. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those of mankind who have not the seal of God upon their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death will fly from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses arrayed for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. 
Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their power of hurting men for five months lies in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. What is going on here is judgment. If there is one word to remember from what we're going to hear in this woe is judgment. So this is a covenantal curse that occurs because God is judging those who live on earth. The earth dwellers. Earth dwellers is a technical term, technical expression used to indicate those who do not believe in God. It doesn't mean everybody living here. It means those who are clinging to earth. So, in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 3 and 6, and then 16 and 18, 3 and 6, 16 and 18, we'll read. The earth will be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together with the earth. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth, on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his elders he will manifest his glory." So in this text from Isaiah, we see a summary to the next three woes. Where God is going to judge the hosts of heaven. When we say hosts of heaven, this has double meaning. In one situation, it means the angels who are at the service of God. When heaven is taken to be the abode of God. The host of heaven means also the host of the air. That is, heaven now is taken as an elevated place of authority and in that case God is judging the host of heaven this is why Jesus will say I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven he didn't mean that Satan was before the uh, holy trinity he meant heaven as a high place of authority and power that is a summary of what we're going to be dealing with here First, you saw that God has despoiled the earth, and it's explained why, because of idolatry. So it is the moral behavior of man that impacts ecology. Not in a direct fashion, but indirectly through judgment. In the background of all of this, keep in mind the seminal text of Genesis, because Genesis is key. Recall that when God, when Adam and Eve sinned, before they sinned, they were morally upright, they were in harmony, the whole earth was good. All right? 
When they sinned, what did God do? He told Adam, curse first, the first curse to Adam is what? The ground. Nature. Cursed be the ground. In sweat you shall bring forth food. So what was cursed? Nature was cursed. Then, the second was for Adam, in sweat. So he was physically cursed. He didn't have to sweat before. Now he does. And the third curse is what? Spiritual. You are going to experience death. You see how this progression works in Genesis? You see the same progression in the curses of Egypt. First, nature was hit. And then we get closer and closer to man. And the final curse kills the firstborn. It is Genesis on a bigger scale. It is Genesis addressing the nation of Egypt. What you, hear here, what you have here is take the same pattern and make it cover the whole earth. Okay? Now, I gave you a pattern in Genesis and in the plagues of Egypt. We also have an anti-pattern in the person of Job. And that's very important for us to remember that. Wilcock points out, God is using to expose the true character of the wicked the same method which in the case of Job was used to expose the true character of the righteous. And that is a fundamental principle for us to understand how the book of Revelation works. The world will suffer. We live in the world and therefore we're going to suffer. This is not about making two camps. The people of health and wealth because they believe in God and the wicked and the condemned because they don't. That is not Catholic theology. You will see how important suffering is in a minute. But the point I want to make here is that it isn't about how we survive in this world. It is about final destination. It is about how God is going to lead us through suffering and trials and difficulty home. That's what happened to Job. That's what happened to Christ. That's what will happen to us. And if we root our suffering in the understanding of the cross and of the throne of God in heaven, then we will be consoled. That is very important for us not to lose sight of. Because then we can fall in one to two extremes. Extreme number one, we can turn around and say, Ha, all these wicked are going to get destroyed. There's nothing for me to do. Tough luck. Oh well. Extreme number two, the opposite one is, Well, you know, God can't be punishing anybody. It's just circumstances, events that happen out there that make people do what they do and end up where they end up. And both extremes lead to the same place. And it's not heaven. So, 
I read to you chapter 9, but there is an introduction between the fourth trumpet and the, first, the, the, the fifth trumpet. And that is the eagle. Verse 13 of chapter 8. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets which the three angels are about to blow. Old Testament announcements of coming judgment include the image of an eagle as a metaphor. As a metaphor for destruction. So an eagle in mid-heaven, an eagle flying, is a metaphor for destruction. Why? Because those who are about to be destroyed are the prey. And that prey is weak and cannot escape the eagle. All right? So the eagle is coming down on its prey and it will not escape. You see that consistently. I'm going to give you a bunch of references. I'm not going to read them. Well, not all of them at least. Um, maybe two. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 49. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 13. Chapter 48 verse 40. Chapter 49 verse 22. Lamentation chapter 4 verse 19. Ezekiel, chapter 17, verse 3. Hosea, chapter 8, verse 1. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 8. So if we take Hosea, chapter 8, verse 1, we hear the following. Put a trumpet to your lips like an eagle against the house of Israel. Put a trumpet to your lips like an eagle. What an odd combination of imagery unless you understand the covenant. This is the covenantal trumpet and the eagle of judgment. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 13. There we have the image of an eagle that is followed by the expression, Woe to us. Together with the threefold trumpet blasts found in verses 5, 19, and 21 as an announcement of judgment. So this is not a new image. It is rooted in scripture. This is an announcement of covenantal destruction using the eagle, which is the, the animal that dominates the heaven from position of power and from that zenith point, the woes, the threefold woes cover the whole earth. No one will escape. Now, in the fifth trumpet, you notice that when the fifth trumpet blew, John saw, St. John saw a star fallen, not falling. He didn't see the star falling to have, to earth. He saw it already fallen. That is important because if you recall from the third trumpet, we had there a star that fell. And the name of the star was Wormwood. Yeah, that thing. Wormwood. And that, that star was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. So you can see in the text itself a symbolic representation of an angelic being. Right? Anytime you hear an expression put in a passive, he was given, understand 
that the one who gave him, which is an action rooted in authority, is God. Because the Jewish mind does not want to use the name of the Lord. So they will find different ways of indicating an action by the Lord without using his name. Most often than not, they'll use the passive form. Something happened without naming who did it. And that person typically will be God. So he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. If you recall from the letters, Jesus specifically said, I hold the key of Hades. The bottomless pit is Sheol, death. That angel, that fallen angel, has been given the key. That is a direct action by the Lord, to give a demon the key. I want you to think about that for a second, because it goes, it runs counter to the general picture we form in our heads of the Lord. That picture is true. It's beautiful. We have to keep it. It's very precious. But we cannot limit the Lord to just that picture. Because otherwise we contradict Scripture. Either it's God the Father or Christ who gave that fallen star the key of the pit. The other important element is that we never hear of good angels falling to earth. We hear of them descending. We hear of them coming, never falling. Fallen is only used in association with demons. And that's what we call them, by the way. That's why we call them fallen angels. We just we don't call them fallen angels because they somehow tripped somewhere and fell. We call them fallen angels because of Scripture. So it is important for us to realize that what that demon is about to do is according to God's plan. It is according to the plan of Jesus Christ. What does that mean to you and me today? That means when we look out into the world and we see all the mayhem, and all the problems, and the woes, and the terrorist attacks, and all of that. Who should we see, who should we see behind it all? Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's who, who we should see. Without that affirmation, our hope is vain. Without that affirmation, the cross is useless. If Jesus Christ is not in control of this world, if He is not the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of History, if there is one action out there that escapes His authority, if there is somebody out there who can do something on His own, contrary to the will of Jesus Christ, then that means the world has no Savior. That's what it means to have a Savior. 
You understand? So it is very important for us to realize that through that covenant of the blessings and the curses of the covenant are the means by which God is going to bring about the glory of His name. And our job is not necessarily to understand it all. Our job is to be faithful. Read Scripture, study it, and ponder the events of our own time through the patterns of Scripture. And then give glory to God. This is the root of our hope. How can we have hope and peace, true peace, in a world like this? How? How can we live as Catholics, as Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, how can we live the three theological virtues, peace, I mean, love, hope, and charity? How can we live those in a world like this if the world has overcome Christ in one single action? It's impossible. The graces that flow in our heart today, tomorrow, and every day of our life are rooted in the victory of the cross over the whole world. And therefore, everything that proceeds from the cross governs the world. And 1,000 difficulties do not add up to one doubt. I may not understand what's going on out there. I may scratch my head and then formulate some vague plans about how I would go about saving the world. I might go through the whole exercise, but at the end of the day I might say, I'm not God. Lord, you know what you're doing. I trust you. I trust in you. This is not home. This is boot camp. I'm just passing by. I'm going home. Now the pit. Yeah, so before I I get into the pit, I just want to put it out to you this way. In God's plan, there is no eschatological dichotomy between good and evil. There's no such thing as yin and yang. There is only one plan unfolding according to God's design, according to His divine authority through His church covering the whole world. Our job is to make it happen. He gave us authority to make it happen. We're just not doing it. The pit. In John, in in, in Job, in the book of Job, the abyss is the abode of the cosmic Sea dragon. You see that in chapter 41, verse 23 and 24. The same can be seen by, in Isaiah chapter 27. This abyss is synonymous with Hades. Uh, see Isaiah chapter 24. Also Job chapter 38 and Ezekiel chapter, chapter 31 and Jonah chapter 2. In all these cases, the pit is the same thing as Hades. Now, Hades has essentially, in the minds of the ancient, Hades was a place that they represented, knowing that it was just an image. They put it under the crust of the earth, and it had two rooms. There were two rooms there. All right? So, one room was the abode of the just, where they would go awaiting 
awaiting the gates of heaven to open. And the other room was the place where the evildoers will be consigned for purposes of judgment. And the way you get in there is through a pit. Okay? Through an abyss. And where was that abyss? Where was the mouth of that pit? According to, this is not scripture now, alright? This is lore, but it's important for us to understand this, this so that we can form the same kind of mental images. According to that lore, it was in Jerusalem. It was right in the temple. The rock of that temple was a big lid on the abyss that led to the abode of the dead. Right? Yes, that's where, it's, it's the rock where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. It is the same rock that is today in the Dome of the Rock. It's important for us because it makes us understand the consequences when it says that he gave him the keys to the bottomless shaft. Recall what Jesus said about the temple in his interaction with the Pharisees. At the end he said what? Behold, your house is left desolate. He left. Right? After his leaving, there was still a time where that lid was closed. Now the time has come to open it. So it's important for us not to understand this image physically. Alright? There wasn't a big guy that showed up and then just took the lid and moved it out. It's spiritual. Having said that, this will help you understand why we read in the Gospels that on the day of the resurrection, an angel came. What did he do? He rolled a big stone. Okay? That is symbolic of the opening of the door from which Christ rose. Alright? And you will see that there is a connection between this and another angel, a good angel, that will come down to close that chapter later. Now, the smoke. Darkening of the sun connotes judgment. We've already seen that. This image was repeated in Joel chapter 2, verse 10 which Peter quotes in Acts, um, and um, also in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, where it is a sign of judgment. It's partly included in the, in, the, in the plague of Exodus with the darkness. So the smoke affects the same thing as that darkness. It, in, it indicates what? Recession of the truth. The truth is moving out. Ignorance is setting in. The smoke from a furnace is associated with judgment in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19 verse 28 and also in Exodus chapter 19 verse 18 which may suggest divine wrath because when God came down the whole mountain trembled and was covered with smoke. God was coming down in wrath. The other important element of the meaning of smoke is deception. 
to be deceived. Because smoke darkens the day, and in St. John's writing, in all of his writing, darkness symbolizes spiritual blindness. St. John has always that writing about the day and the night, light and darkness. And darkness is always spiritual blindness. So when the smoke came out, its purpose is to do what? To cause people to be deceived. You've you got to have to let this, this one sink through. God gave that key to a demon. The demon opened the shaft, smoke came out, and deceived people. That's part of that judgment. Now the locusts. So, recall that from the text, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So, the scorpions come out of that darkness that is caused by the smoke. So the first thing that happens is that people are deceived. Now, deception leads people away from the truth. Being led away from the truth, it will cause them to despair. So authority was given to them. The text says authority was given to them. I mean, they were commissioned to execute a task. And this authority is given, again, by God. And the model of the Exodus plagues confirmed that God is the absolute source. Because in the case of the Exodus plagues, God was causing plague after plague to occur. And here he is causing the smoke and the locust to come forth. Now those locusts are really terrifying. They have the power of scorpions. It is rather interesting that Pliny, who is a Roman uh, writer in his natural history... Uh, reports a case of scorpions that were poisonous like snakes and had wings. Had wings. They flew. That's what he reports in his, in his writing. It's kind of interesting. I've never seen such a scorpion. I don't particularly like to see a swarm of those either. Now in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 28 through 31... We read that in the year that King Ahaz died, an oracle came. And the oracle said, Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod which smote you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder. An adder is a viper. And its fruit will be a flying serpent. I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant I will slay. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. Now, of course, that was a prophecy of the coming of the Assyrians as an army. So they looked like smoke coming from the north at full speed. But the meaning of this for us is that there is a relationship between the effect of those scorpions on people. They will wail, they will cry, they will faint. In other words, they're going to be anxious. So anxiety sets in. Deception, then anxiety. So this is not about physical pain. This is much more important than spiritual pain. 
<clears throat> so the combination in the imagery of locusts and scorpions, when you combine these two, you get what? Something that is very harmful and very destructive. That's why the two images are combined. In Wisdom, chapter 16, verse 9, we saw that um, in, in previous lectures. We see that the Egyptians were killed by the bitings of locusts and flies. Neither was there found any remedy for their soul because they were worthy to be punished by such things. So the plague of the locusts in Egypt was seen in the book of wisdom as punishment for their sins, but one they attacked their souls, caused internal suffering. And in wisdom chapter 17, verse 3 through 21, that book speaks of the Egyptian idolaters as under a dark veil, being horribly astonished and troubled with strange apparitions, and sad visions appeared to them with heavy countenances. They were terrified by hissing serpents and died for fear. They were vexed by monstrous apparitions that arose from the bottom of hell. But these plagues did not affect the believers. Now, I do wonder. Now, this is me talking, okay? This is not a, the church teaching. It's just me wondering, right? Scientifically, you ask any, any scientist today, any cosmologist, anyone who studies the universe, and they'll tell you that the chances of having flying saucers around here are next to nil. Logically, we cannot even understand how this can happen. Yet, we hear of all these people having these strange and terrifying encounters with those UFOs. I have yet to meet, I have yet to meet a dedicated, orthodox, pious, Catholic, who met those UFOs and prayed a rosary with them. Do you know any? Have you heard of any Catholic? Goes to Mass, knows the faith, etc. Who told you, I got a UFO encounter. Those guys, man, they showed up and they, we start talking about you know, the Eucharist. And I explained to them what we're doing. It was a great conversation. We had a great time. You've met anybody? Do you catch my drift? Listen carefully to this text, again from wisdom. The Egyptian idolaters are under a dark veil, being horribly astonished and troubled with strange apparitions. And sad visions appeared to them with heavy countenances. They were terrified by hissing serpents and died for fear. They were vexed by monstrous apparitions that arose from the bottoms of hell. Do you see how Scripture has the power to root you into reason? Do you have the power of the Scripture to kind of slap you on the head and say, okay, think logically? Scripture does that. The locusts are to harm those of humanity that do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Effectively, God is safeguarding His church. And they have twofold limitations. The first one is that they only to torment them. They cannot kill them. 
and the second one only for five months. Well, the five months is not such a good news because if you understand how locusts function, they show up during the dry and hot season. And how long does the dry and hot season last? Five months. So essentially they're saying this is a massive infestation of locusts that lasts the whole full period. It says something about the intensity of that punishment. Now the torment. The affliction brought by the locust is again compared to that of scorpion sting. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 15, we see a literal sting. We see that literal stings are mentioned. And in Sirach chapter 26 verse 7, we see that it speaks of a figurative sting. So sting does not necessarily mean a physical sting of a scorpion. The very fact that this is a composite image of locust and scorpion should lead us to understand we're not dealing with a physical animal walking around. All right? It, it is a spiritual attack by a demon. These things represent a demonic attack coming to do what? It's riding on the deception that people are plunged in because of the smoke and now it's going to take them one step further. So what, what these demons are doing is are tormenting these people spiritually and psychologically. <clears throat> and we see it in the Apocalypse in chapter 11 verse 10, chapter 14 verse 10 and 11, chapter 18 verse 7, 10, 15, chapter 20 verse 10. We see that torment inflicted by demons, spiritual and, and um, uh, um, psychological. Why? Again, uh, there was a saint, I think it was Saint Anthony, although it could be Don Bosco, I don't know which one, who was standing, yeah, I think it was, or Saint Dominic, Saint Dominic, Saint Dominic, was standing before a group of people and he was trying to tell them about the necessity of, of uh, saying the rosary. And these people were not listening. So St. Dominic prayed to God and asked God to show these people their spiritual reality. And instantly, demons appeared who were holding these people by their neck with chains. Sometimes three people, three demons to one person. What do you think the effect of that vision was on these people? They repented and started praying the rosary real hard. Get it? That's why you will not see a physical demon. When God punishes, God punishes. He's serious. It's not a joke. In Wisdom chapter 12, verse 23 through 25, we see that the torment of idolaters included deception. That is, the trials they suffered did not bring them knowledge of the true God, but only hardened them further in their ignorance. The covenantal curses of Deuteronomy 28, the famous chapter 28, states that the fruits of the plague of locusts, which is inflicted because of idolatry, idolatry, idolatry includes madness, insanity, bewilderment of heart, groping at noon, being driven mad, a trembling heart, despair of soul, life hanging in doubt. Just look at the world around you out there. We live in a time of 
massive, huge medical advances. Most of us live better than kings lived in the past. Materially, I say. Why? Most of us can go home and turn a, a, um, a faucet and get hot water. Try that in the 15th century. Most of us have bathrooms. All right? We live longer than anyone who lived before us. We live healthier. Our food, even the food we eat right now, overall is far better than anything the poor ate in London in the 19th and 18th centuries or in Paris. Okay? And yet, you go out there and what do you find? People obsessed with vitamins. Take this one, it does this. And take that one, and this is good for you. And that one, and this one, and the other. And you step back and you watch them. And you could almost see that something is riding on them. Causing them to be more and more concerned about their health. Now don't get me wrong. It's important to take care of our bodies. Yeah. But that's not what's going on out there. The level of anxiety of people living out there. The, the constant sense of insecurity. Right? The CEO of GM sneezes and Dow Jones loses 60... I mean, just what kind of nonsense is this? What is it coming from? Do you understand? And the typical view that the world imposes on us is, well, of course, that's because, you know, God has put the world on autopilot. He doesn't really care about us, you know? And you Catholics, you do your thing. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Just do it by yourself and don't bother anybody else. That's not at all what Scripture is telling us. At all. The demonic locusts impose a form of psychological suffering that induces a desire for death, yet unwillingness to commit suicide. A lot of people out there, a lot of people out there are not happy. A lot of people out there don't think much of life, yet most of them would not kill themselves. They cling on. You wonder, what for? They live their lives. They've been married. They got divorced. They had kids they had to take care of. They may have been married a second time. Maybe they're in the process of, you know, divorcing or who knows. They want to go on a cruise. They go on a cruise and they come back and, and, and they're just the same. And they keep on living this life that seems aimless, meaningless, empty. Yet they all are afraid of dying. This is not a natural state of a human being. This is not what God wants for us. God wants something far greater. And the problem is, unless we understand how the covenant works, we're not going to be able to find this peace in the middle of this madness. And once we figure this out, once we see God in control, we can sing a hymn of praise in the middle of all of this, and then we can pray for them. Because when we understand what is being unleashed, yeah, truly, we should pray for our persecutors. 
truly they don't know what they're up to. And none of us wish hell on anyone. And then we turn around and we give praise and thanksgiving to the one who saved us. Because without him, that's what it would look like for all of us. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.